Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ace Couple podcast. First and foremost, I want to wish everybody a very, very happy Ace Week. If you are listening to this in the week that this came out, it is Ace Week. I hope you are doing something fun and fulfilling and exciting or relaxing for yourself if you are Ace. If you are not Ace and you are an ally listening to this podcast, then I certainly hope you are giving the Ace friends in your life cake and or garlic bread and generally uh, celebrating their very awesome existence. If you happen to be listening to this on the very day this released, Wednesday during Ace Week is Disabled Ace Day. So please take this time to really listen to and engage with Disabled Ace stories. Now on to the podcast. My name is Courtney and I'm here with my spouse Royce and I am very, very thrilled to tell you that we have Another phenomenal interview for you today. Uh, we're here with a very good friend of ours. We really, really appreciate them, and we know you will too. So go ahead and introduce yourself for our pod people. All right. Um, my name is Mick. I am Ace. I'm also Arrow. I'm a potter and musician as well, and I also stream on Twitch. I think that's good, right? Absolutely. Well, if if I'm not mistaken, you're not just Ace and Arrow, but you are uh, what we love to call a triple A battery. I am. Yeah. I'm also a gender as well, which is pretty cool. It really is. We love collecting A's around here. All of the A spectrums. So I am so glad that we finally have you on for today because... I actually, now that I think about it, I think the very first time I was able to really start to get to know you was about a year ago today, uh, because you were one of our inaugural interviewees for last year's Disabled Ace Day. Mm-hmm. That is true. And since then, we have uh, gotten to talk a lot more. Uh, you're even in our D&D party. We love playing D&D around here. We've seen some of your streams on Twitch and your beautiful pottery. So we, we just appreciate all the many things that you do. But in honor of Disabled Ace Day, we, ha we have a lot of things to talk about today. But let let's go ahead and start with that, um, is there anything you can really tell us about your journey in asexuality, aromanticism, that um, how, how does the intersection of disability play into that for you? Well, I mean, I guess it kind of plays the same in uh, pretty much a lot of aspects since this world is pretty ableist, especially when it comes to like invisible disabilities and and whatnot because i may look like an able body individual but I, I do have few uh invisible disabilities that like you wouldn't know from from seeing me that is very much an issue <laughs> i i know invisible disability is something that i mean thankfully it started to get a little more attention over the years but there's there's still just a lot of additional concern that people who have invisible disabilities have with making sure they're getting their proper accommodations, because that's hard enough for anybody who is disabled, let alone if people don't even believe that you are disabled in the first place. Right. 
And I, I suppose that really can go hand in hand with, with, with sexuality and romanticism and gender as well. Cause a, asexuality has very often been called the invisible orientation. And a lot of people think, well, if, if there isn't an orientation manifestation of this that we can, we can see and observe if it's just sort of being defined as quote, not having a sexuality, then it's not real. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Have you had any clear situations of people who have sort of disregarded important parts of your identity because they just couldn't see it or didn't have the evidence that they deemed appropriate? Uh, As far as asexuality goes? Yeah, or or any of it. <laughs> yeah, specifically uh, just telling people like, hey, you know, I'm ace. Like, I mean, it's different now because I'm in a lot of queer spaces. But like when I first came out, people were just kind of like, that's not a real thing. Or you have some sort of like psychological issues that you need to work out because, you know, you're human and that's kind of your purpose is to make more humans and so on and so forth gag that is yeah way too common of a talking point (laughs) it really is and that's actually something that just like over the years because many if not most or all of my disabilities can also be considered an invisible disability i i do often use a mobility aid like a cane or crutches But for very short distances, if it's a particularly good day, I don't always need a mobility aid. And those are the days where people will really be like, are you really disabled? Yeah. (laughs) Which I've I've started getting sassy about that over the years. I've actually got a... um, I, I don't know if they have this where you are, but I have a... Uh, disabled parking placard so I could uh, park in the accessible spots. And there have been some times where people have challenged me on that. But when they issued me my placard, they also gave me a literally disabled ID card (laughs) with my name on it. And it says disabled ID card. And they they say like, yeah, if you're going to use accessible parking, you have to carry this around. So Anytime people challenge me on this, I'm like, do you want to see my cripple card? Which I would imagine leads to embarrassing moments. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody really knows how to respond when you ask that question. Yeah. (laughs) I I would assume that the average person doesn't know that there are government issue cards like that. At least I didn't. Do you know, is is that a state card or a federal card, Courtney? Mine's issued by the state. And so I imagine there are some states who have different, you know, requirements for that. There was one time where I was actually traveling internationally for work and I was trying to get airport accommodations at one point and they were asking me for for like proof and evidence and I was like, "Well, I've I've got this disabled ID card from the state of Kansas." They were like, "That's not a real thing. That doesn't count." <laughs> do you want? But yeah, if you are willing to share, what are some of the disabilities that you have? Um, well, I'm bipolar, which is one. I also have diabetes and chronic fatigue. And I might possibly have ADHD or something. It hasn't been diagnosed because for some reason, it's really hard to get some sort of diagnoses for 
ADHD and like adulthood, at least for me, rather. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard to get a diagnosis for, I, I think, probably anything that is considered neurodivergent or neurodiverse as an adult, because a lot of those things, whether it be ADHD, autism, even sometimes OCD, like those things are thought to be really obvious in a parent that you can you can peg in a child really easily. And and many adults end up really, really struggling if they go undiagnosed. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I think that's pretty common too, because especially if you exist in disabled spaces and you get to meet and befriend a wider variety of disabled and neurodivergent people, sometimes you start looking at all the friends around you and you're like, man, we have a whole lot in common, but I'm the only one in my friend group that doesn't have this diagnosis. <laughs> right. Uh, Ro- Royce and I have definitely... Um, we talked just just very very briefly about this recently but we've both for a bit over a year now been pretty convinced that we are autistic and just have not yet been diagnosed yeah i mean that's kind of where i am too cuz it's like i i have a decent amount of autistic friends it's like you know a lot of the things that you're saying that you do or you feel like those are things that i also do and feel i mean i know that there's like a lot of like things that are comorbid between like autism and adhd yeah that's that's been the hard thing with me uh because i don't i don't think royce has gotten this as much we we've both really related to a lot of our autistic friends and all of these you know nuances that we've been learning more and more about autism but for me and i don't think as much for rice i'll also start learning more about adhd and seeing some friends of mine that have been diagnosed with adhd and i'm like you know some of those sound right too hmm so so it's like is it one or the other or is it both hmm. yeah which I, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this that haven't been through it themselves are probably like, well, that's not an official diagnosis. You should probably see a doctor about that. But if you're one of those people, then you probably have not been subject to intense medical discrimination before, <laughs> which is a very real thing. Is that something that you have dealt with either along with your disabilities or at all with your sexuality especially if there are any complications because you are also black yeah um i guess like whenever i would bring up like asexuality during like my early like mental health evaluations they generally assumed that it was either because of like medication or trauma or something and it's like no i was just born this way but as far as like autism and ADHD go, I know that it is something that is kind of seen as like a cis white male disorder. So mm. when I brought it up, like about potentially having ADHD, my psych was pretty much like, well, you weren't diagnosed as a kid, so like probably don't have it. And <laughs> that ship has sailed. Yeah. And they're like, especially if you like didn't do poorly in school and... Or if you were just kind of like in the middle, like if you excelled or like did poorly, then you probably have it. But if you're like in the middle, then then probably not. But yeah. The uh, school diagnosis is interesting because 
kind of the first sign of neurodivergence that I've had was dyslexia. And it's something that I was, I've been kind of thinking on for a long time, but I just didn't know enough about how broad it is. But I did always do pretty well in school. But I learned at one point that I couldn't study like most people could, and I couldn't go about lessons in the same way that most people could. And I would have odd things that I just couldn't do, like I couldn't tie my shoes in kindergarten, which was supposed to be part of like moving on criteria, but for some reason they just let it go. And so there were just little things that had I been in a different setting, had my parents been different, had my teachers been different, had I hadn't had I not like had the environment where I could kind of structure things in the way that I needed to, I might have done really poorly at school and that might have shown itself in childhood. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I never really like I have a hard time with like studying too. So it's like I either get it or I don't like there's no in between. And then there's Courtney, who also very much definitely has OCD. And if I, uh, I guess a, co- a combination of OCD and potentially autistic special interest, I, I will get really, really hyper fixated on one thing until I know absolutely everything there is to know about that thing. Mm-hmm. I guess that could be considered studying, but that conveniently didn't happen with most of my subjects in school. Okay. But yeah, ugh, med- medical bias is such a difficult thing because there are definitely, the, the more we've been engaging with a wider variety of people in the disability community, the more I've started to see a push to sort of de-medicalize things like autism and ADHD and sort of a push to try to think of it as just, you know, natural variants, just a wider variety of neurotypes, which on a, you know, on a personal level, I can, like, I I can really jive with that. But there's also very much an issue where a lot of people do actually need a medical diagnosis on paper in order to get any kind of accommodations that they may need in work or school. (laughs) So it's, it's sort of, in some cases, a very necessary evil that you have to think of it through this medical lens. But I I mean, on the other hand, there are just so many barriers to getting that diagnosis for so many people. Yeah, I know that it's like particularly hard for, I guess, societally perceived women to get a diagnosis for like autism and ADHD as well. Yes. Well, and so that's that's another thing too because when you, when you get into like autism education, you'll time and time again see like autism in girls. Autism in girls is different and adult women getting diagnosed with autism and that conversation is normally very very binary. It's the difference between men with autism and the difference between women with autism. But when when you actually dig into the handful of studies that have been done about autism and general like gender and sexuality diversity, everything I've read says that things like being either binary trans or being non-binary, agender, gender fluid, and then just not being cis hetero is very much more common in the autistic population than it is in I guess our neurotypical our our holistic counterparts and I I want more information on that <laughs> cuz I find that fascinating. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's really gotten me thinking more about just things like asexuality and autism, because the weird thing is a, a few years ago, I decided to make just like a little YouTube video about, well, actually celebrating Ace Week. I thought that's a good time. And my my YouTube channel was just about like hair and history and things that I do for a living. Uh, so it wasn't an, an ace education channel by any means, but I thought, oh, I'll just throw this out and just, you know, teach some new people this part of myself. And I got just the most vicious, vile hate comment that was just like every single thing in the book. And of course, since since I am a woman and I... <laughs> I dress the way I do. I got all these like, you can't be asexual. You're too sexy for that. I got uh, threatened with some really nasty, horrible things. But then it was also like, oh, and by the way, you're not even asexual. You're just autistic. And I, I know that that was meant derogatorily. But at the same time, it's like, oh, <laughs> I, I can see why there are going to be people in the ace community who are going to really, really want to separate that and be like, asexuality does not have anything to do with autism. Because people will throw that around as if autistic were an insult, which we, we know it is not. But we know that's how the bigots mean it to be. So, so there's there's going to be a drive to try to separate that. But um, I I also know some people who are like I I did get diagnosed with autism when I was younger. It's been such an integral part of the way I view myself for so long that maybe maybe there is an intersection between my autism and my asexuality. Some people think very strongly, yes, there is. Some think very strongly, no, there's not. And some say, well, I don't know, but I don't know if it matters. And so I, I personally think that's something that's worth studying and investigating. But I think at the very least, we shouldn't condemn people who do think that those parts of themselves might inform each other. Because at this point, I'm like, heck, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know sometimes. Well, and it's it's really that that desire to separate the two is really just more ableism because the fact that someone is also autistic or any any number of other diagnoses, you could substitute this for any type of neurodivergence or any type of disability. The, the fact that they have that disability or neurodivergence doesn't mean we should respect any part of them any less. Right, right. Yeah, it seems like in some instances to try to say that, well, this is happening because of this other condition is an attempt to like delegitimize whatever that thing is, where you can you can have multiple things going on that may be comorbid to some degree or may have some underlying thing or, you know, all of these parts of your brain just could be commingling to make you the person that you are. And like that doesn't make any one piece any less valid or supported than, than any other piece. Most definitely. So one thing I really, and, you know, maybe, maybe we should just take a little step back because when, when we were talking with you, Mick, one thing we really, really want to talk about is the fact that you actually have military experience. I do. And I don't think that I personally have ever seen anyone discussing at length what it is like to be an asexual person 
in the military. So I'm very, very fascinated to hear what that experience was like for you. It was not a pleasant experience. I will say that, but I don't know. It's, it's weird because, you know, so like when I was in, like it was kind of like frowned upon to like be, be gay or anything like that. But when I told people that I was ace, like it was generally met with a lot of skepticism. And then, you know, the, the common, you just haven't met the right person yet. Ugh. I know. Uh, my coworkers actually got together one day and it was kind of like an intervention, but it wasn't like, you know, I was like sitting and they all like kind of surrounded me and they were just like, you know, there's something wrong with you because everybody likes sex. Everybody's sexually attracted to people. So, <sighs> so yeah. And that was. They approached you with that as a group? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, one of them apologized eventually later on when they realized that they were queer to some degree because they did not know. But yeah, but it, it was, it was an, an interesting experience. Sounds very toxically heterosexual, which is in line with most of the things that I know about the military. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny because, like, the particular job that I did, like, it wasn't, like, full of, like, you know, like, when people think of the military, like, they think of, like, the muscle heads and, and stuff. But it was a pretty, like, nerdy job. So, like, they were a bunch of nerds, you know, people who you would think that would understand, like, you know, being like the outcast and whatnot. But yeah, and we did have some muscle heads in that particular job, but it was mostly, mostly the nerdy people. That's so, so interesting because we don't have a lot of friends who are both queer and have military experience. But we, we did have one for a while who, at the time he was in service, I believe he was actually active duty at one point. I believe he had some bisexual tendencies, but was very much either closeted at best or at worst had internalized a lot of homophobia at the time. And and I don't know if this was specifically during um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but it it, it might have been. <laughs> And when we were having a conversation with him at one point about asexuality, I just remember him trying to empathize with us and being like, well, I suppose I can understand asexuality because there was a time where we had to shower and get ready so quickly that we had to do a co-ed shower. And I was in the shower even with, you know, the these uh, women and... I, I was so tired and I was so exhausted and we were in such a hurry that I didn't even think about them sexually. And, and we were like, uh, I mean, is that if, if, if it's surprising you that much so many years later that there was that one instance where you didn't look at a naked person and think of them sexually, uh, I don't I don't think you really do get asexuality, actually. But we, we've definitely heard uh, stories of very, very toxically heterosexual, um, cishet, no less, culture in, in the military. At the time, so, so you actually, you knew you were asexual. You uh, tried to articulate this to people who sounds like they, they very much disregarded that. Were any other aspects of yourself 
known at the time, such as a romanticism or being a gender? Or was it all sort of a process where you came to each one at a time? It it was a process, like a gender and like a romanticism. They're fairly recent. I mean, a gender, like I, I've, I know that I've been a gender for like the past three or four years, but not while I was in the military. I mean, I've always kind of had a feeling like, you know, I don't feel like really anything. Like I don't, like I don't do any of the, the things, you know, that guys are supposed to do or girls are supposed to do. Like I was just kind of my own thing. Like, you know, people would be like, yeah, you know, like, guys typically feel this way when this happens, or... It's like, I don't really feel that way. I don't really feel any way in particular. So I knew there was something there in that aspect. I just didn't have the words for it at the time. That certainly makes sense, because obviously we have these very, very rigid gender norms, and of course the, quote, traditional... um or I suppose you could say colonial, <laughs> white supremacist, Christian, all all of the normativities that there are, a uh, version of gender is very like soft, fragile, homemaker, female, and then very like buff, masculine, head of the household, breadwinner, uh, male. And there are a lot of people that ev- even a lot of people who are cisgender, who who break those rigid molds. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, oh, you can be a tomboy or a girly girl. But those were both presented as like appropriate ways that you could be a girl. And there wasn't more past that. But I I do like that now our society is seeing more of a like, well, you can still be a woman, but you can still do this or that. You can you can express your gender in different ways. And I love that. I think it's very freeing. But uh, what I'm curious, and, and maybe you can't even identify the train of thought because things can, can happen over a long period of reflection, but do you know sort of what it was that in your experience you took in what society was telling you this gender is like versus that gender is like? It seems like you just decided to like opt out of all of it instead of trying to find your own niche within one of the presented options. Was there a very clear line of thought that led you to doing that? Um, well, I, it was actually because I was, I started hanging out with like a lot of my friends. Um, they were trans. So like, it was kind of like, Hey, you are feeling this thing. And this is kind of similar to the thing that I'm feeling. Not exactly, but it, it just kind of spurred me to like look more into it. And then I kind of, kind of went my own way afterwards so yeah because like i I just kind of like described like the things that i felt and like and whatnot and then like my friends were like you know what you might you might be trans and i was like yeah you you might be onto something and is trans a word that you still do identify after having taken on uh i guess the the label of agender or shrugged off all the other labels of gender (laughs) yeah i mean i still i still use I still use it. I mean, I mostly use a gender because it's it's kind of like it's very specific. Like it's a very specific form of like gender non-conforming. So it's like you know you can be trans, like trans, like a demi guy or demi girl. It can be trans mask, trans femme. But it's like me, 
a gender, like, specifically. Which is nice, like, having that. Cause, you know, like, with asexuality, like, you know, demisexual is part of the asexuality spectrum, but it's, like, a very specific type of asexual. And I guess that's how I feel about agender. Like, it's, like, yeah, if I say, like, I'm agender, like, people don't get to be like, well, what type of trans person are you? Or, like, how do you identify under the trans umbrella? It's, like, agender, very specific. Yeah, and it's, it, the the A does, to me, seem to have a lot of power because it's it's almost like a blatant refusal. Like, with asexuality, it's like, I am refusing the sexuality that society assumes that I have. <laughs> and with agender, it's like I am I am refusing gender. There there is none to speak of. Which is curious, and maybe you two can talk a little more about why you've gone one way or another, but there are definitely some people who are agender who say, Yes, I am trans. Agender is the type of trans I am, or that's a manifestation of my transness. There are also some agender people who don't necessarily identify with the label of trans, and that's for each individual person to decide. But I know, Royce, that's one thing you've said where you're like, I don't identify with the trans experience in that way, but I am agender. Right. And just listening to Mick's story there, you came to the term agender by talking to trans people. I kind of came about it in isolation, so I didn't really have any exposure to trans identities while I was kind of figuring things out. But I do also really like the specificity of the A prefix with a gender, and even before that, being an atheist. I've had a couple of people say, well, you know, most atheistic people are actually agnostic, or they're actually this or that. And, and I've always been like, no, right. <laughs> this is this is a very specific <laughs> <No>. thing. <laughs> yeah. See, it's a refusal. <laughs> Yeah, for me also, it's kind of hard to separate the way that I may be perceived by others. I think that's a lot of how my anxiety manifests is my subconscious brain kind of stewing over projections of how I might think others might see me. And if I did start using the term trans, there would be that need to have a deeper conversation anytime I mentioned it. Like if I, I felt like if I just told someone I was trans, their first guess would give them the wrong impression. Yeah. Mm, that's an interesting point. And see, I, <laughs> my gender's an odd one because I don't not, I guess, relate to being a gender because I'm like, yeah, no, no gender is great. And I understand the logic, but I also think back to like, I, I was like five or six years old. I was very young and I made a pie chart of my gender. And th this was like the, the tomboy or the girly girl years. And I was like, well, that's, I was very critical of that. Even at a young age, I was like, well, if you're going to be a tomboy, like maybe you could just be a boy. But I was like, but just being a boy isn't correct. And sometimes being a girl is great. So I was like, all right, 50% boy, 50% girl. Yes, both of them. And then I looked at that chart and I was like, that's not right either. <laughs> so I was like, 25% girl, 25% boy, and 50% um, other. And I didn't know what that other was. So I just wrote other slash Courtney. And I was like, yep, looks good. That's that, <laughs> That's correct. So now, I mean, now as an adult, I, I know there are some people who identify as trigender. And it's like, well, if that word was given to me at a really young age, I would have been like, yep, that one. But I also, my, my brain, and maybe this is my own brand of neurodivergence, my brain is very much like all or nothing. 
Like I, I can't do those little habit trackers each month. I've tried, I've tried, but I'm like, I need every single day, every habit I'm tracking to be completely filled out. Otherwise it's useless. And I know that's not a healthy way to use them because it's supposed to just measure your progress and, and whatever. But my brain's like, oh no, all or nothing. I think my brain's kind of the same way with gender. It's like either you have all of them or you have none of them. And yet it's also just kind of an odd thing for me because I love the performance of being a woman. And I think that's my gender expression is very much performance based. And I kind of have always been a performer. And so regardless of how many genders I do or do not have inside of me, it's like, I enjoy performing womanhood. And I know that not everyone likes gender performance. I know that it's a very limiting and restricting thing for a lot of people. But for me, I'm like absolutely high femme all the time, unless I, you know, the once or twice in my life uh, since I'm I'm not a smoker and I, I've had like a couple of cigars in my life. And it's like, if I have a, a cigar and a scotch, uh, then then my pronouns uh, are sir. <laughs> That's fair. I, I don't know. I guess the performance is the only way I can conceptualize gender. And maybe maybe that's my clue that I don't experience it the way your average cis person does. Mm-hmm. You have joked before that at least when you're outside the house, like around company, dressing up like that, where your gender is drag queen. <laughs> y- yes. <laughs> I am a woman in the way a high femme drag queen is. Can't explain it, just how it is. So I guess along with gender, because we we know that gender and pronouns are not always a package deal. One does not one does not require a certain set of pronouns for one's internal gender or gender expression. But just for our people on the podcast here, what is your what are the pronouns you use and what was your journey to settling on that? Um, my pronouns are Zer and they them. I mean I I picked they them, I guess, when I first started kind of experimenting with being non binary. And as far as pronouns go, like I pretty much picked my pronouns based on like what I like the sound of. So, which is like anybody can change their pronouns, like regardless of if they're trans or not. So, but like I just picked them based on what I preferred or like I liked having people refer to me. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I might end up changing them one of these days, but I'm pretty set on them for now. Which is such an important thing for people out there to know, because you can absolutely try new pronouns if you are, you know, exploring that aspect of yourself. Royce and I, we actually have a friend who has been investigating sort of the the realm of, of non-binary and, and where they might fit on it. And it kind of came from just a sense of like gender euphoria when someone who didn't know their pronouns referred to them by they, them pronouns. And there was just sort of a surprise moment of, oh, that, that kind of felt good. <laughs> so sometimes putting on or experimenting with or changing pronouns can be a step to learning about what feels right for you. Sort of sort of like a new set of clothes might. 
Yeah, that's a good good analogy. Also, I don't think I've heard anyone really say much in a public space. You know, I chose these pronouns because I I liked the way it sound or you know sounded or you know the way it felt when it was spoken towards me. And pronouns are really just an extension of identity, much in the same way that you can choose a name that you like to hear. And there are plenty of people who are cis who aren't queer whatsoever that don't like their given names and start going by a nickname or by a middle name instead or something like that. Absolutely. Or or just change their name even socially and legally. Now with, um, just also for clarification, since this is a, a spoken podcast, um, but also for our, for the sake of our transcribers or the people reading, your Zzer, if I'm not mistaken, you use the letter Z as opposed to X, because I, I do know oh, yeah. people who have gone both ways. Yeah, I use, yeah, the Z instead of the X, which they sound the same, so... Which is, oh, I'm I'm going to try to look up the book while I am telling this story because it was a pretty good book. I read a book by an intersex author that was, yeah, I, I believe you could call it an autobiography. There were a lot of personal stories about it. But the author was talking about Zizir as as pronouns. And I, I don't actually remember off the top of my head if that was spelled with an X or a Z. I'd have to go back and check. But one thing I did not realize until reading this book was that those pronouns actually gained popularity in the 80s in Dungeons and Dragons circles huh. and, and TTRPG groups for people who were playing characters in these you know fantasy settings as a, well, I, I guess it was probably different for the person. Was this a third gender or was this some level of non-binary or fluid? But this intersex activist said, yeah, it was actually started and popularized rather in, in D&D circles before okay. uh, intersex groups started picking it up more in the 90s. And of course, this this was sort of before, I guess, our, our current system where it's a little more free in, in at least... LGBTQ communities <laughs> to use different sets of pronouns um, and to use things like neo pronouns. Because I definitely remember, um, and we almost certainly have some listeners young enough that this may come as a surprise, but at least the part of the country I was in at the time when I was about, uh, I must have been like 18, 19, so early adulthood, and I was really starting to connect with other queer people and experience that community for the first time. Gender non-conforming people and non-binary people were using Zzer pronouns more often than they them. Huh. And I thought that that was going to become like the, I, I don't like the word default, but essentially the default third set of pronouns because I was hearing it so much more. And I, I really thought that was going to be the case for a while. But at least in the last several years, uh, there's been a huge uptick in people using they them pronouns. And it's like, well, I it it, it appears at least from where I'm sitting that they them has overtaken Zizir in popularity. Yeah, I would say so. But I know that there are a lot of, I guess, cis people that... Uh... For some reason, don't understand the usage of singular they, them. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of funny because there, occasionally you can find 
some author writing, you know, in classic, like, American history, mentioning just how they, them is the gender neutral, like, singular, both singular and plural pronoun. Uh, that book, by the way, that I read was Born Both, An Intersex Life by Ida Valoria. For anyone out there who is curious about that book, but I read that and I was like, hey, Dungeons and Dragons shout out, which is, is very interesting because I think things like Dungeons and Dragons, things like gaming, video games, TTRPGs, there's this societal impression of it that it is very, very, I guess, just straight, white, and nerdy. <laughs> and... Every major gaming community that I have been a part of has actually been very, very queer. And I, I think gaming is really, really important to a lot of us in these communities. And when it comes to things like like D&D &D and role-playing games, the number of trans friends I have who have told me that their very first step to exploring their gender was by creating a tabletop character that was the gender they were exploring for themselves. And I, I just think that that is so powerful and so important. And I wish more people understood exactly how important gaming can be to us in these communities. Yeah, it's very important. Which I'm sure you you know very well. You're very active in in some gaming circles. I mean, we see you we see you on Twitch. We see you interacting with other Twitch streamers. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, the LGBT side of it, the the ace gamers out there, the arrow ace gamers, and what that community is like. Um, there's actually a surprising, like surprisingly high amount of um ace and arrow gamers that I game with. I'm also in a, like another like I have a campaign that I play in on Wednesday night and like everyone in that is also like some form of ace which is which is nice because I feel like most aces kind of they get it like you know as far as D&D &D goes like I haven't come across like the horny bard like in any of the gaming circles that I've been what in. A nice. <laughs> so, what then, a relief. What a relief. Yeah. And then it's things aren't like super sexualized in, in gaming when I'm gaming with my ace friends. Cause we all it's like we all get it. Like we're all ace, so we just kind of focus on the task at hand most of the time. And like we've all had pretty similar experiences. So like when we game it's kind of like an escape from getting away from like the aphobia in places. And oh it, yeah, that escape. Nice. Yeah. So like we we tend to share our communities with each other, which has like a lot of ace viewers. So like it's kind of like we're creating this network of aces and arrows on Twitch. It's like people come into my my chat and they're like, "Oh, you're ace too." Like I'm ace. And, like, I I came here with this ace streamer, but now I have, like, another ace streamer to watch. And it's it feels nice. Because when I started, like, I didn't know any other aces on Twitch. I felt like I was, you know, kind of by myself, like, doing ace things. But it, it turns out that there's quite a few. Which is so cool, because through gaming, not only... Do you get to just see, hey, there are other aces here, which is 
you know, sort of the real life representation that I think so many of us have been craving for so long. But you also get to really just have fun with each other and play with each other. And uh, when you get into things like role playing, it can actually become such an intimate, personal way to share little parts of yourself in a very unique way. So I I think that's so cool. And honestly, we we didn't even know until last year that there was such a big sort of network of ace arrow streamers because well for for one we just hadn't done much on twitch i i I was oddly enough like a really really early ace streamer for a very small period of time i was like the one the one woman who was playing league of legends for like a couple of months and i was like whoa way too many people are watching me this is overwhelming and stopped and never looked back but then then i just didn't even think to look for a community there, even though I like games, I like playing them, I like watching them. But when we started our Twitch account, we found the Aces playing at attraction stream. And then we found you and we started watching, you know, your two channels. And we were like, Oh, wow, actually, like you said, you you share communities. So we started learning about more people through you all. And I think that's really, really, really powerful. Because we often say like the ace community, but we we don't always do the actual things you would think a community would do. We we kind of yell into the void and we'll like and retweet our frustrations or our celebrations, but there's not a lot of just like real personal communities where people are getting to know each other on a personal level, where people are looking out for each other. But I have I have seen some of that on on Twitch and honestly might might be some of the strongest little ace pocket communities I've I've found yet, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it's really nice. So since it is Ace Week as of this episode being published, I would be remiss if I did not remind our listeners that If you have read any of the book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, A Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture by Sharonda J. Brown, we are actually having a book club to discuss the book on the Saturday, the 29th, the last day of Ace Week at 1 p.m. Central Time via Zoom. If you want to RSVP to that, we'll put it in the description. But I was delighted when I received my copy and I started reading it that you are actually quoted in that, Mick. Yeah, I still have to look. I mean, I, I just got the book uh, recently, but I haven't had the time to to read through it. It is a really phenomenal book. To any listeners out there who haven't read it yet, I strongly, strongly recommend it. But near the end of the book, there is a chapter called Black Asexual Insights with quotes from a variety of Black Aces. Some of them, if you're on Twitter, if you follow us, you'll recognize. You'll recognize Mick. There's, I think, the Asexual Goddess and Marshall, aka Gentle Giant Ace. So there are definitely a couple of names in there that I'm sure many of you will recognize and, and some new ones as well. But it it is a fabulous book, and it's it's very important and it's very necessary because the black asexual lens is not something that is centered as often as it needs to be in the broader ace discussion. So, Mick, what what is it you can share with us about the 
black ace experience or your black ace experience specifically um anyway it's it's kind of strange because again like for whatever reason asexuality is seen as like kind of a a white thing so it's weird so like i think a lot of people don't take me seriously when i say that i'm ace i also know that non-black people see black males as like hyper aggressive and hypersexual for whatever reason. Like I don't even know where that stereotype came from, but it is a stereotype that is pretty prevalent. So like when I tell people that I am ace, like they essentially, you know, double take and they're like, yeah, you know, like I wouldn't have expected that. And I guess I'm lucky because my parents they have accepted that I am ace. And that I'm probably not going to give them any grandchildren or anything like that. Mm, yeah. What were some of those conversations like? Was that was that difficult? Was it something that sort of took some time for them to really get? Um, it wasn't difficult. We did have, I guess, the standard conversation like, oh, you know, you just you haven't met the right one and but i guess you know after i passed you know the age of 25 they are probably like yeah you know we 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 think that you're probably just not going to and and we accept that yeah they're more accepting of me being ace than being polyamorous so oh really yeah they are not that's interesting yeah they don't like the fact that i'm polyamorous like, they said that they will support me, but, like, they don't like it. And they have made it known that they do not care for the lifestyle. Mm, that is very interesting and a very good point. I, I do think some people are able to accept certain parts of identity easier than others. Do you know at all where, where that comes from? Or is it just kind of one of their own personal hangups or... Um, well, my parents are, they're extremely religious, so that's, that's, I think that's a big, you know, a big part of where it comes from, because, you know, they believe, like, you know, one person for one person, man with woman, etc., etc. So, like, the fact that, you know, I can have multiple partners if I choose to... It doesn't slide with them because they think it's, I guess, sinful, so to speak. Mm, good old-fashioned sin argument. Yeah. So well, why don't we... Can you tell us a little more about what polyamory means to someone who is asexual and aromantic? Um, you know, it's... Funny, and I guess maybe a bit ironic, but um, being polyamorous actually, you know, helped me come to, uh, it helped me realize, you know, that you can love people in different ways. And, you know, like platonic, aesthetic, um, familial, sexual, etc, etc. You can love them all in different ways, but like, no way is more or less valid than the other because i mean i feel like uh most people think you know like there's like this hierarchy where 
like romantic love is at the top and then everything else is underneath it. That being polyamorous just kind of helped me realize like, yeah, you know, like I can love my partner in a way and I can love my best friend in a way. And like, I both love them very deeply, but I love them differently. And like, I can love multiple people um, regardless of the type of love. And like, it's still meaningful and it's still like no one is better than the other as far as being ace i actually started off in a bad like i've i've had a couple of like bad polyamorous relationships before like like my introduction to polyamory was was not uh a good one like my my partner at the time was like well you know like you're ace so like i have these needs that need to be fulfilled so I'm going to get them fulfilled in some way, like, whether you want me to or not. And I was like, you know, like, I was fine with that at the time because I, I didn't really, I didn't really get it. So I guess the agreement was that she could sleep with whomever and I would fulfill the emotional and romantic part of the relationship while someone else fulfilled, like, the physical and sexual part. And, like, I know now that that's, that's bad and that's not, like, real like polyamory like that's the bad stuff it wasn't a relationship structure that was actually working for you yeah and um and it's funny because um i think it would have been like okay if like she didn't put like she put certain stipulations on the relationship like so she could have like a girlfriend or something but i was only allowed to have a boyfriend and at the time like i was i thought that i was like you know cishat so it's like i'm this doesn't work for me like i don't like the stipulation and uh yeah so you thought you were cishat and she was like i guess you can see other people <laughs> only if it's a gender you're not interested in is is that yeah. what i'm getting from that that's yeah a, a little bit oddly, I mean, con controlling for one, because this wasn't a discussion. This was a stipulation that she was laying out, which yeah. is not not good. But wow, I, I don't understand the logic <laughs> at all on any of these levels. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. That sounds very much not like the right way to do an open relationship. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I'm definitely a lot better about it now. Like, I communicate with my partners and whatnot, and we come to agreements. And, yeah, it's, although, I don't know, most of the time they always ask me, like, it's weird because for some reason, I guess people, like, equate, like, you know, sexual attraction to, like, just attraction in general. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, they assume, like, hey, you know, like, if you're ace, like, you don't have sexual attraction, that means you're not attracted to them in any way, shape, or form, which means that they're unattractive. It's like, that's that's not how that works. Yeah, so you, you've actually had partners that don't seem to really understand the way you experience attraction. Yeah. And it's like other aces, like they get it. Like I don't even have to like say much of anything. Like I can just type out a sentence that other aces will see and be like, yeah, you know, like that makes sense. Like that's me. But like with aloes, like it's like they'll see it and like, like they can't wrap their head around it. 
Yeah, that's that's very interesting because, yeah, the, the different types of attraction that people may or may not experience, I think, is, is very personal. But those of us on the asexual spectrum, we at least know that the way we do experience different attractions, if indeed we do, is it, we just have a very different relationship to it than allosexual people do. <laughs> so we at least have that like shared community understanding, which that I, I think the polyamory and or open relationship discussion is very, very interesting because you are polyamorous. Now you've had bad experiences in the past. And I think it's good to talk about both because one of one of the frustrations that we have had as a couple of aces is that so often when you go to asexual forums and people are asking for advice or they they want a relationship but they fear that it must be with an allo person because just numbers wise that's most that's most likely and people wondering how to navigate that sort of the default answer that we see time and time again is open relationship, polyamory. And it gets thrown around as this just like very simple, like just do this, problems fixed. <laughs> yeah, it's not the fix all that people think it is. No, absolutely not. And I'm sure at least some of the people making that, <laughs> making those comments have found a relationship structure that works for them. But we, we've we actually found that there's there's very little out there for resources for just sorting, sort of helping people to navigate the different types of relationship structures and helping them come to an understanding of what may or may not work for them. And we, we especially don't like when polyamory is presented as like a more evolved way of being <laughs> yeah because we've we've definitely seen that like oh well if you're not polyamorous then that's a character flaw because <laughs> it can only yeah. come from you know jealousy or this that or the other thing and i honestly think that relationship structures although we don't talk about orientation, sexuality, romanticism, we don't talk about relationship structure being inherent to orientation. But I I almost think sometimes that it is a part of our orientation. Are we oriented to being on the monogamous side, on the polyamorous side? What What are the number of relationships we feel happiest in that we feel like we really flourish? And what is the nature of those? Are they sexual? Are they romantic? Are they neither? I think those are all worth exploring for every individual person. And I think, I don't know, I, I do think if it was more socially accepted, <laughs> there would be more people who are polyamorous. I really, really do. But I also think there are some people who are just a little more comfortable in monogamy for whatever reasons are their own. And it's not always all 100% of the time just a social hang-up or, or jealousy or a character flaw. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, I know that there are a lot of polyamorous people here, but they're not very open, especially because, you know, like, I live in the South where a lot of stuff is generally not really tolerated, so... Mm, more conservative area. Yep, very conservative. 
Yeah, that can definitely that can be an issue. At at least there there was some good news. We we tweeted about this at a time and I'll um I'll put it in the show notes again for anybody curious, but there was a New York case, a housing case that went to court that was a very promising step toward providing legal protections for polyamorous families in housing. So that was really, really good to see. Because aside from the obvious social stigma that very much still exists, it's really the the legal protections that are also very, very much lacking. Because the, the, the only legal protection that there is for a relationship that is not blood family is essentially marriage. And marriage, even though Obergefell versus Hodges has made you know, same-sex marriage legal in, in all states, that still does not protect polyamorous couples, polyamorous marriages. And we've talked about in previous episodes, depending on which judge you ask, it might not actually protect asexual and or aromantic couples either. So there, there is a, a, a gaping hole in, in our legislation for different relationship structures and what legal protections they do or do not have. That sounds super intense. It is intense, like camping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, maybe, maybe a circus is, is more of an apt <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. Politics is a circus. Yeah, politics really is a circus. Yeah. I don't know. I wish that there were more laws and stuff in place for aces and arrows. Oh, we, we really do need it. Yeah. There's like people that don't even believe that we exist, so... That's true. That's true. We We need a case like Sweden had recently. Sweden had a case of a couple of women who were living together. One died and it, it was again another like sort of an estate question and a housing question. Does this person who they have been living together, they have had a relationship, but as far as anyone knows, it was not sexual in nature whatsoever. Does the other party in that relationship have any legal protections or any legal right to, to a state and whatnot? And that case actually said that, yes, <laughs> yes, she does. So that, that was a wonderful uh, case. And I would love to see a case one like that also here in the States. Yeah. And it's like, but why, why wouldn't she have those rights? Like, I don't, I don't understand like the, the thought process behind it. Yeah. <laughs> there are people that just put way too much emphasis on sex. They're like, that's how you legitimize a relationship. Yeah. That's how it is. Well, we know better <laughs> in the ACE community. We know better. Now I, and th this might be a, a huge question and you may or may not have a clear answer, but maybe we can at least talk about it a little bit because I know it's a big, big frustration for a lot of aces and arrows and arrow aces and people exploring where they are on the spectrum. When you say that you are ace, you are aromantic, but you are polyamorous and there are you know, different types of relationships you have with different people that don't have a hierarchy in your eyes. How do you personally distinguish the difference between different types of attraction? Because I know there are many people out there who say, you know, well, I'm definitely asexual, but 
how do I know if I'm aromantic? Because what even is romantic attraction? And when you start getting into these emotions, they're so personal and they're so varied. And sometimes the lines between them are a little blurry that sometimes it's hard for people to navigate exactly what type of attraction they may be feeling. Do you have any, I guess, stories or insights as to how you came to define things for yourself? Um, It's actually kind of funny because I also identify as qua romantic, which is also uh, known as WTF romantic. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so for me... Sometimes I have a hard time uh, distinguishing between, like, the feelings of romantic and platonic. So, like, I could have a really strong bond with a friend and I'll be like, I think that I am romantically attracted to you. And then it ends up being like, well, you know, that wasn't the case. I was just strongly platonically attracted to you, but the feelings were just so strong that, you know... And the way that I felt, you know, given what society has dictated as, you know, being romance, like, I have, like, I mistook it for romantic attraction. Because there's a lot of things that you can do with your friends um, that aren't necessarily romantically aligned. Like, you can go out on a date with your friend, like, go out to a nice dinner and do some nice things, you know, go home, cuddle on the couch and stuff. You know, you can be physically intimate with someone without necessarily being romantically attracted to them. And it, I guess it was kind of like when I started to realize that I could do all these things with people and it wasn't necessarily tied to being romantic that I could kind of separate myself. I mean, I still have trouble distinguishing but i think most of my feelings for people are are typically platonic but the things that i do and say to people i guess from an outside perspective might be seen as as romantic so it's hard and i know that a lot of like i've seen that a lot of aces specifically have a hard time like distinguishing their feelings like hey do i have like a romantic crush on this person or is it platonic and (laughs) is it a squish (laughs) yeah and it's it's hard but like i guess it's kind of like one of those things where it's like i just took the time to think about it and decided so like i identify as arrow but i mean i still can have like romantic feelings for someone i just it's just one of those things where it's like yeah i can't really tell the difference between like romantic and platonic attraction and more often than not i am platonically attracted to people that's what it usually ends up being so then there's qua romantic which is some people like some qua romantics don't consider it to be an aromantic orientation but like i do like i have friends that are also qua romantic that use that as their arrow like identification And yeah, it's like, it's just like one of those things. Like, again, like you get to dictate like how you feel and what you do with people. Like if you want to go on a date with someone like doesn't have to be romantic. Like if you want to, you know, be physically intimate with someone like it doesn't 
have to be romantic. Like, you could be friends and do those things. Like, it was society that determined, like, hey, you know, like, if you hold hands with someone or, like, you kiss someone, that means that you are romantically inclined. And that's that's not always the case. Oh, absolutely. And the only times that broader society sort of acknowledges that there are ways to, I guess, have a relationship that doesn't fit the traditional mold is is still very rigid because like friends with benefits is a thing that a lot of, or at least a, a growing number of people have come to be like, oh yeah, that's, that's a valid thing. That's fine. That's okay for people to do. But anything that still kind of blurs the line between friends with benefits and any of the other ways to have a relationship with people, there's still just so much confusion and pushback there. And it's especially weird because I think no matter who you ask, when you say, what does romantic attraction actually feel like, or what is romance? People are going to have such different answers, whether they're aromantic, whether they're demi-romantic, whether they're just full-on, like, hopeless romantic, romantic attraction abound. <laughs> like people are going to have different impressions of what that means. And I think a lot of that is informed by the society that we grew up in. People tell us, you know, uh, a candlelight dinner is romantic and a walk on the beach is romantic. So a lot of people have this romanticized look in their head of, you know, once I fall in love with someone, I want to do these things with them. But it's like a candlelit dinner and a walk on the beach, like, you can do that with anybody and still have a good time. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really like qua romantic and WTF romantic as labels because it's, it's just sort of an acknowledgement that it's okay to not rigidly define each attraction type for every single relationship you have with every single person. It's sort of freeing in that sense. And also every time I see someone type WTF romantic in like a hashtag where there's no space between it, um, I can't help but in my head hear what the fromantic. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, for me, I guess when I look back at the relationships I had that sort of broke the mold of a traditional romantic relationship, but was also very strong and intense and wasn't perfectly aligned with, I guess, friendship. I don't want to say just friendship because I don't want to devalue what friendship is or necessarily put other relationship types above it. But when I have felt something a little extra and a little different from most of my other friendships, it's it's really just with the gift of hindsight that I've been able to say, like, that was definitely a a queer platonic relationship. <laughs> and if I had one like it now, I would be able to put a label to it. But back then, it was a situation where, I mean, for me, I'm I am asexual. Like there there is no demi in me whatsoever. So like when I say like there there was not sexual attraction, there never has been for me. Um, not conditionally, not not a little bit, just none, not there. But with romantic attraction, for me, it's a little weirder. It's still a little rare. It might be a little weak. It might be, I don't know, it's it's a little weird. There there might be some demi-romance there, but I, I don't think my queer platonic relationship was a romantic attraction. Right. Because if, if I were to put a word on what I have with Royce, I do think uh, we have a romantic marriage. 
but I think this might be the only relationship I've ever been in that I have like 100% definitively been like, yes, this feels like romance. (laughs) So it's like, well, I don't think there was a romantic element there, but there was something else. It was something different and it was very, very powerful and very, very important. And so for me, at least being able to look back and sort of retroactively define that as queer platonic has been really good for me in trying to separate out how I experience different types of attraction. But is queer platonic for you a word that you currently or have ever used for any of your relationship types? Yeah, I've I've used that. Just, I don't know, like I, I feel like when I use it, it's kind of like a, it's like something that is, I guess, not defined. Like it I don't want to say that it's like it transcends like platonic relationships because then it, it sounds like it's better, but it's kind of like this weird, it's like its own thing, kind of like in between like romance and platonic, but like not necessarily having like elements of romance. It's just kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a different, a different bond. Yeah, like a, a sliding scale sideways as opposed to a hierarchy where one's above the other. Yeah. Very much still a spectrum, but something something else, something different. I I, I can relate to that for sure. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people like describe it as kind of being like a soulmate, but like not romantic. And like, I, I feel like that's that might be like a good descriptor because it's like, I don't know, when you think of soulmate, like it's, a very strong, like, unbreakable bond. Yeah, very un- unconditional. Yeah, but most people think of it as, like, being a romantic-only thing, but I think you can you can have soulmates for, like, pretty much anything. Oh, sure. I, I used to tell people that my cat was my soulmate. <laughs> and that wasn't ironic. That, that cat meant everything to me. Uh, may she rest in peace. I mean, yeah, I I do think there are even friends who are not in a queer platonic relationship, might even not consider themselves to be queer, but they say like, you know, this is my best friend and my best friend is my soulmate. Even if they're dating other people, they're like, you know, relationships come and go, romantic relationships come and go, but my best friend is there with me through thick and thin. And I think the the really unfortunately like, gendered aspect of that is that if you're talking about like two straight women who have been best friends for their entire lives, I think most people can look at that and accept that verbiage (laughs) because society kind of allows women the chance to get a little more personal and emotional and just like you know, intimate with one another on in a friendship capacity that isn't necessarily romantic or sexual. Whereas for men in the society, that is still very much frowned upon in a lot of places. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. But there are a lot of things that are societal norms that make absolutely no sense. No, absolutely. (laughs) Once once you bust one of them wide open, it's kind of just a chain reaction. All of the other normativities just go right down the drain. Yeah, that is. So hopefully we will deal with uh, a matter normativity and allonormativity. Yes, uh, cis-hetero patriarchy. Yeah. Um, 
all all of them ableism <laughs> yeah all that stuff is just ingrained in our culture and like it it goes uncontested by a lot of people it really does and i think sort of ingrained in these things like compulsory sexuality and matonormativity there there are so many other components to it it really does affect every stage of our lives where if we're supposed to be doing something by a certain time by a certain age if what we're doing doesn't fit what society thinks we should be doing it affects so much actually there's another uh normativity term for that um it actually does get discussed a bit in refusing compulsory sexuality as well so i'm i'm just going to tell all of our listeners all the time to read this book cuz i I do think it is the most comprehensive book on, yeah, well, I guess compulsory sexuality, but so many things, black asexuality, all of these normativities that we're constantly fighting against. But another normativity that gets talked about is chrononormativity, uh, like chronological. And that is that things are supposed to happen by a certain time. You're supposed to have, quote, lost your virginity by a certain period of time. You're supposed to be married at a certain time. You know, you go to school, you go to college, you graduate at a certain time. And then by a certain age, you have to have kids. And it's all sort of on this predetermined societal clock. <laughs> and and a lot of that is all wrapped up in amatonormativity, because a lot of it is dictating what type of relationship you should have by a certain point in your life. And that that's a marker of maturity. <laughs> People think if you haven't reached those milestones or those the rite of passage by a certain period of time, then you are inherently, you know, infantilized. And that's something that a lot of us in the ACE community hear like, oh, well, you just need to grow up or you're a late bloomer. Yeah, it's very insulting. Very insulting. Well, <laughs> and I, I've also just kind of said that society just also really hates children. <laughs> I, I've ranted about that a couple of times on this podcast, like, Society really does not see children as autonomous beings. And like, of course, children need to be raised and they need assistance with things to varying degrees, depending on, you know, their age and capabilities at certain points. But like, that's still a little human. <laughs> like every time someone's like, I hate all children. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you mean that very large group of humans? <laughs> So it's it's really like when when people are infantilizing one another, like, oh, you're just a child. They use child as if that's an insult. It's like, we've all been children. There are children now. Why are you equating child with bad? <laughs> yeah, I never understood that. It's just me, though. It's I mean, it's hard to be a kid. <laughs> So, so many uh, friendships of mine, like we're, we are all very much adults and it's for a lot of us, it's been a long time since we've been in school and we're, we still look back at our school years and we're like, that was miserable. <laughs> that was awful. So I don't know. Courtney says, give kids a break. <laughs> I agree. Mick approved. We need to get you a little stamp of approval. Yeah. That would we'll make a cool. Mick approval stamp. <laughs> I still haven't gotten my gavel. I said once that I want a gavel to uh, make rulings on whether or not something is good ace rep. <laughs> Bad rep gavel. Still never got that. Rice, put that put that on a put that on a shopping list for me. Am I in charge of the Amazoning? <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, ideally, if we could find um, a, a small business that makes gavels, that would be even better. We could check through all of the Ace shops to see if there are any gavels. Okay, everybody who has a shop on the marketplace right now, if any one of you out there is able to make me a gavel, I will buy it so quickly. <laughs> we have over a hundred shops on our marketplace now. And Mick, you're you're yes. on there too. Your pottery is on there. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, we, we are very pleased with our little marketplace. Tell us a little bit just because the, um, the theme of Ace Week this week is uh, boundless creativity. So there's uh, a big push to show off the creative projects, the artwork, all the ways creativity manifests for, for the Ace community. And you are an artist in, in many facets. I mean, we, we talked a bit about your Twitch streaming, but you've also got your pottery. You've got music. Tell us a bit about just your life as as a creative, artistic person. Oh, pottery is fun. I actually... So the the friends that I met that, um, that I guess... My trans friends, like, they were doing pottery stuff, and I just sat in with them a couple of times, and then... It's like, this looks like fun. And then I, I picked it up and I've been doing pottery ever since. Um, it's, it's fun. It's, it is, um, relaxing. And then I can also express my ex, my asexuality through pottery by, you know, painting the pottery in ace colors or giving it any sort of like ace symbol. So like, it's nice being able to, express myself through art and I guess the same goes for music but I've been doing music a lot longer than that since I was in middle school I've been a musician so but is was there anything that you wanted to know in particular I, I just love hearing about other artists creative pursuits just in general I think it's really cool that you're like making ace pottery that is so unique and so cool yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. Although I probably need to get more glaze in the near future. What are your favorite like things to make with pottery? I really like making cups and bowls, which I guess is um they're basic shapes, but I feel like they're like the most versatile pieces of pottery. Like you can use a bowl for a lot of things. You can use a cup for anything. Can't exactly, you know use a sculpture or something like that so like it's basic but it's very functional and i i like that and i can express myself in many ways with the pottery so it's like you can have a plain cup you can have a decorative cup but they're always going to be used for something and that's that's nice it is really nice when like a high quality handmade piece of artwork is also something that you can just integrate into your daily activities <laughs> like that. That's something that I think is so undervalued because I mean, everyone has cups and plates and bowls and most of us just get a set from the store um, or we get them secondhand from family or gifts or secondhand shops. But like, you can hire someone to make you something custom by hand. <laughs> yeah. And and just use that every single day. And to me, that just, it makes life just a little more personal, a little more artistic, a little more colorful. And 
it's 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 just personal. It's not as cold and corporate, I think. Yeah. So let's see. How can the people order pottery from you? I think you're on the marketplace. Is is your name on there the Milky Kiln? Did I get that right? Oh yeah. I I couldn't think of anything as a I guess a good name, but I think that's, that's a great name. I saw that come through. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my uh my Ko-Fi is probably the best place for picking up pottery. Although I'm still, well, I recently got back into the studio, so um, I'm kind of, like, trying to get back on the bike, I suppose. I mean, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. And with your uh, music, I mean, I know you, you and I have just had private conversations about music before because I have... I was also a, a band geek and an orchestra geek and I played multiple instruments at different points of time. But for the people listening who don't know about you and your music journey, tell us a little more about that. What are your musical instruments and your interests and the, the way you use music to express yourself these days? I use vocals. I play the trumpet. I play the piano. Um, I do music composition. I'm trying to dabble into music mixing, which is a whole different beast. But yeah, music is also another fun way of uh, expressing myself. Um, I can express it through, you know, playing or through the lyrics. I know music is a very beautiful and fluid art form. It's very much its own language, too. Yeah. Even music that doesn't have lyrics, you know, the, the key, the tempo, there is so much emotion that you can express through music without words. That actually just reminded me, because I was about to say, you know, there there aren't a lot of known ace musicians or ace songs. And I know back when we had uh, Tiger Songbird on the podcast, we, we started talking about how we like really need an ace band. <laughs> And I, I do still agree with that. I, I think an ace band would be great. But in talking about D&D and things, I just remembered that there is a song that I have listened to a couple of times. I just came across it on YouTube, like, I don't know, a couple of years ago, maybe. And it's, I think it's just called D&D &D and Asexuality. <laughs> and I found that song and I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, it's a very um, straightforward title. Yeah, the lyrics. It's It's been a while since I've listened to it, so I'll have to uh, go back and pop it in the show notes. But it's like, I want to know what comic books you read, and I want to know if you play D&D. &D. <laughs> it was kind of just about like, nope, I'm not interested in you in that way, but let's let's connect on these other levels with these other interests. <laughs> so very cute. We need more of that. And then with your with your streaming on Twitch, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You tend to keep things a bit cozy yeah, a lot of the time. I'd say so. One of the last games that I played was Dead Space, which wasn't wasn't super cozy or comfy, but it was a lot of fun. I like to play farming sims, and I also like to play platformers. Uh, but I do try to keep things nice and chill. Yeah, it's it's a great little community. And you you are also, I believe, involved with Cloud Cabin as well, which yeah. we talked about very recently. So tell us, tell us a little more about Cloud Cabin and your involvement with that. Uh, I'm actually a team lead for Cloud Cabin. 
Shania is the the founder, and uh, they made a post on Twitter a while ago, and it was kind of like, hey, you know, like, I want to make an A-spec team. And, like, that's been one of my goals, like, on Twitch, like, you know, but, like, obviously I can't make a team because I'm not... Because you have to be a partner to make a team, and it's like, I wanted to make a team for A-specs. Since, like, you know, when I joined Twitch, like, I didn't know, like, that there were, like, any other aces. So, yeah. So, like, it's a team for aces and arrows and anybody that's on the ace or arrow spectrum. And it's it's a really nice place. It's There's a lot of love and a lot of understanding between fellow A-spec. And that is that is really, really so cool because I, I know so many people since we've started this podcast have reached out to us and been like, how can I actually find community and hang out with other aces? And this is such a cool way to get exposed to sort of an already built in community of aces who already love and support each other. Um, so if gaming is at all an interest of yours, uh, whether you play them yourself or if you like watching Let's Plays, you like watching Twitch streams, definitely check out Cloud Cabin. We'll, we'll put a link to Mixed Channel as well as Cloud Cabin so you can see all of the Ace and Arrow streamers that are already in that community. There, there are a lot of great people in there for sure. Yeah, it's a really nice space. So Mick, what are your plans for Ace Week? Are you doing anything in particular? Um, I have not decided. I know that um Satan and Sharky want to get me on to one of their streams. Ah yes, the Ace is playing at Attraction. We're gonna be on one of their streams. Race is that Friday? I believe we're scheduled for Friday during Ace Week, yeah. Yeah, I think we're we're going to have a pretty busy week. I think we're going to try to keep it a little low-key the first couple of days because, well, Wednesday, the, the day this podcast is released, is Disabled Ace Day. So I'll have the Reigns of the Ace Week Twitter account and doing a lot of engagement for there on that day. I believe Thursday... Yeah, so Thursday, we're going to be on Ace Chat on their Instagram account. And then Friday, we're going to be on Twitch with Aces playing at Attraction. And then Saturday's the book club for Refusing Compulsory Sexuality. So we've got, we we got a tight schedule for a, a few days in a row there, but it should be good. Maybe, maybe we'll order a cake. Maybe we'll order some garlic bread too and <laughs> try to have some Ace, uh, ace self-care. <laughs> Let's see, we talked a little bit about where the people can find you. We definitely mentioned the marketplace and your Ko-Fi. I never know how to pronounce that, if it's Ko-Fi or if it's like actually pronounced like coffee. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would be pronounced coffee because it's like a little cup, but they're like, oh no, it's pronounced like lo-fi. And it's like, that oh, doesn't make sense. That's but, interesting. Okay. I had no idea. Because <laughs> I've heard people say it both ways. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I I'm, I just type it a lot more often than I say it aloud, so I tried not to worry about it too much. Yeah, I think on like the actual like Twitter page, it's like it has the pronunciation. Fascinating! I did not know. So I, I I suppose tell the people where else they can find you. We talked about your Twitch. What is what is your Twitch handle for the pud people? Uh, my Twitch handle is Mictastic. 
I guess my Twitter is Baron underscore Von underscore Milk. And my Instagram is Baron Von Milk as well, but no underscores. <laughs> I have to ask, is there a story behind Baron Von Milk? Yeah. So my name for the longest time was like McTastic. And I had a friend that would always misread it as milk. So then one of my other friends started calling me Milkington Von Calcium the Third. <laughs> and I I liked using that name, but like in most places it was too big. So I uh we ended up changing it and shortening it to Baron Von Milk as the name. <laughs> That's really funny. I like that. I I mostly had to ask because so I I just I I talk to my mom pretty often and just there there's not much new or exciting going on in our lives because we are still very much very like pandemic cautious, staying home all the time. <laughs> so it's normally just like yeah, well we're we're still doing the podcast. We're we're playing games, we're working, but it, it was like a big deal when we started our new all aces D&D session that you're one of our players in that we, we co-DM for. And so that was like, hey, I do actually have something new and exciting. Mother, we're, we're playing a new game with a new group of people and it's all aces and it's going to be great. And so she, she was so excited about that. But my, my mom's on Twitter. Oh. And she follows us on Twitter. And... At one point, she was like, and, and who are all these people in your group? And I not thinking at all that she would have any association with any of these people. I was like, oh, well, we, we've got Sharky and Satan and Mick. <laughs> but like she was asking, so I, I answered. And at one point, she was like, oh, your friend's name is Mick? I thought it was Milk. And I was like, <laughs> what? Do you do you follow my friends on Twitter? And she's like, "Well, I've seen you retweet some things from from friends of yours, and I thought you had a friend on Twitter named Milk." And I was like, "I, I yes, I do actually, and yes, that actually is Mick. I'm amazed that you made that association." That's that's pretty funny. It was pretty good. So yes, all of you out there who follow us on Twitter, if we have ever retweeted you, my mother has probably seen your account. Not in a creepy way. She's a, a, a loving and accepting mother <laughs> who also is home all day, every day. And, you know, Twitter, you can see and access more people mm -hmm. virtually than you can in person these days. <laughs> so that was just a funny little anecdote. But yeah, Mick, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your ace week. Thank you. And I hope all of you, our lovely listeners, have a wonderful rest of your ace week. Please make sure that you are following Mick, following our Twitter account, heck, following the ace week Twitter account. If you're listening to it on the day this releases, um, I will be over on the ace week account doing a lot of engaging. So definitely follow those places. Have a wonderful week. Have a safe week. Do keep in mind that with more awareness, with more exposure, with more discussion, there is almost certainly going to be an uptick in acephobia and general bigotry online as well. So please make sure to engage cautiously 
uh, don't, I'm not saying don't engage. I'm not saying don't have fun and try to enjoy yourself, but definitely be aware of your limits. Be aware if things do end up getting really rocky, that it is definitely okay to log off, log off of social media. You don't need to give the, the bigots the time of day. Uh, you may be better served finding a nice, chill Ace Twitch account <laughs> to hang out in the comments and find find your people. Definitely a good week for finding people. We met so many wonderful people last Ace Week that we are still friends with this year. So I wish the same to all of you. Check out the aceweek.org account for a calendar of events. Uh, I know we're halfway through the week already as of this release, but there are things happening every single day. So you can check out that calendar and find something that might be of interest to you. So everyone enjoy your week and we will see you all next time. Bye.